Glad you're here this morning. Thanks so much for coming. We are in a series on the parables of Jesus Christ. What Jesus does in a parable is he tells a story that the people are very, very familiar with. He then brings alongside a spiritual truth. So the goal any time that we look at a parable is to find out what that, that main truth is that he's trying to illustrate. The parables occur near the end of the life of Jesus. So they're often told within the last year of his ministry. And as we've talked about, part of the idea is to reveal truth, but it's also to conceal it. At this point, there are a lot of people who want to listen to Jesus and argue with him and debate him and all of those kinds of things. So Jesus starts using parables to kind of bring stuff down to everybody's level. And yet, for those who really want to understand it, he brings that spiritual truth alongside. We've dealt with the kingdom parables, and we talked about those in the book of Matthew. And we talked about the first four kingdom parables, dealing with how someone is part of the kingdom of God, who's involved in the kingdom of God. Then he deals with uh, the next two of the kingdom parables where he talks about um, the idea of the importance of being all in if you're part of his kingdom. We did that with the treasure and the pearl. And then last week we talked about the consequences of not being part of his kingdom. And we talked about the reality of a real heaven and a real hell. And so we left those parables. They were in the early ministry of Jesus. And my intention was to try to deal with them chronologically, but there comes a lot of problems in that, and that we're not sure which follow which. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump now to the middle of the ministry of Jesus, and I'm going to look at three parables that are known as the parable of the lost things. So I'm going to kind of deal with the parables in big groups where they're grouped together, and then we'll go back and fill in the pieces later. So these, these parables occur somewhere in the middle of the teaching of Jesus. They're known as the parable of the lost things. And there are three things that we're going to be dealing with. This week we'll deal with the sheep. Next week we'll deal with the coin. And then the next week we'll deal with the lost son. One of the things that you see in these parables, and it's actually one parable with three parts, is you see a progression. This morning we're going to deal with losing one sheep out of a hundred a 1% loss. Next week, we're going to deal with one coin out of 10. That's a 10% loss. And then the last one is losing one of two sons. That's a 50% loss. One of the things that you see is some people have called this the parable of the four verbs. And it focuses on basically you're going to see this theme in each one of the stories. There's something that's lost. There's something that's sought. There is something that's found. And then there's something that they rejoice over. So you see, you're going to see that theme over and over and over again. So let's read the parable. Now I'm going to walk, we're going to go back it up, then we're going to walk through it verse by verse, and then we're going to get to things that will help us as we go throughout the week. So here's the parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, continually grumbled. This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, 
that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, to give you an idea, this is a little bit, these are some ideas of, so that we get the concept of the culture. These are some ideas of what it was like to raise sheep in this particular area of the world. Uh, these are typical pictures of shepherds and taking care of their sheep. This is a little more modern version of it. But just to give you an idea, this is how typically, you know, it's not like green, beautiful grass that we think of. It's, this is Palestine. This is, this is a lot of rocks and a lot of scrubble. Is that a word? A lot of scrabble stuff. I don't know. Whatever that stuff is that grows where there's moldy dirt, that's what they were eating. Uh, you know, you have all of that kind of thing. Um, in this culture. So let's walk back through it verse by verse. Let's see what we can learn. Let's try to pull some principles out. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. All right, so we have to understand the group. Tax collectors. Tax collectors of the day were considered loan sharks, where basically they were unethical in the way they dealt with money with people. The Pharisees uh, today um, we really don't have, I guess, a loan shark is probably the closest thing that we would have in our culture. Um, in this day, the, the, the synagogue, here's how bad it was. Jewish synagogue would not take the money of the tax collectors. Now, let that sink in. Jewish people refused money. Because of their job. They were not allowed to come into court and give testimony because they were always considered liars. You see, they were looked at as rebels from the, the, the culture because they worked for Rome. And they would collect money from, and you go, well, tax collector's not a big bet. I mean, is Don here? Yeah, Don was a, Don, Don, Don made it explicit the other day. He was never a tax collector. He just worked for the IRS. So, nothing gets done. But, I mean, the, the idea was, the idea was, Rome would say, so, so, okay, Todd, so, for instance, let's say I'm a tax collector, and Todd is, I have to go collect taxes from Todd. And I say, Todd, how much did you farm last year? And, and he looks at me and says, you know, well, you know, we, we, we farmed, you know, X number of dollars with it. And we figure out, well, like in this area, it's what, like 6%, whatever. So I go, okay, 6%, the local tax. So I come to Todd and I, I charge him 15%. And he goes, wait a minute, they only want 6%. I said, no, 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 I'm collecting, it's 15%. Well, I'm going to appeal to Rome, go ahead. I still get 15%. Now, how well favored do you think I am going to be? Exactly. They were considered worse than prostitutes. You, they were, you, it was such a bad deal, nobody wanted anything to do with them. By the way, as I'm talking about this, you need to know, when Jesus picks his disciples, he picks a guy by the name of Matthew, who is a tax collector. This is a big deal. So the tax collector, they're, they're saying, that the problem is, he's eating with tax collectors. And then they said, and he's eating with sinners. Literally, in the Jewish world, if you were not Jewish, you were known as a sinner. 
You were known as the actual termless people of the land. You were actually known as a people of the land. And in, the, in, the, in this world, you were taught that you were to have nothing to do with people of the land. You were not to walk with them. If, if you're walking on a trail and you're going to another city and there's a person who's not a Jew, who's a people of the land, who comes up beside you, you're not to have anything to do with them. Stop walking with them. Let them go ahead. Let them go behind. Walk faster. Don't walk with them. Don't do business with them. Don't do anything that has to do with money with them. They are a people of the land. Stay away from them. That's what they were taught. That's, the, that's how they're going. And Jesus comes along, and they see Jesus literally, and this is what's fascinating about this. First of all, he's eating with them. Now, in this culture, to eat with somebody, you only ate with people who, you, who were like you or people that you accepted or people that you wanted to be around. This is a cultural thing. You didn't say, you didn't meet somebody after a service like this, say, hey, you want to go out to eat? You know, we're heading over here. Oh, yeah, sure, we'll go with you. No, 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 no. What that meant was you're just like them. You want to be like them. You guys are together. You believe the same things. You do the same things. You get. And so the, the, in that culture, that's what it meant. And so when they see Jesus doing this, they're highly offended. But what's interesting is the passage, I want to go back to it. See, it says they're gathering around. See that little phrase, gathering around? Uh, some versions say, draw near. Here's the thing. They wanted to be close to Jesus. There is something about Jesus that these people, these people of the land, these tax collectors, these cheats, these thieves said, I want to be close to that guy. I want to be around him. Here's what's interesting. I love what one guy said. They, the untouchables, were allowed to get close to the king of the kingdom. And when you look at the ministry of Christ, he attracts children, sinners, men, magi, shepherds, centurions, soldiers, Samaritans, shepherds, and sinners. They all want to be drawn to him. One commentator said, that's the awesomeness of Jesus, is the fact that they were allowed to be close to him. And then, going on, here's what it says. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, you have to understand the Pharisees of the day. Just like most systems, there was a conservative group and there was a liberal group. The liberal group, uh, the conservative group said that we believe the teachings of Moses which primarily you and I would say the Bible. The, then the, the, the more liberal group said, we believe the teachings of Moses and the interpretation of the rabbis or, or our Jewish leaders over history. And so they were the largest religious group at the time. There were also Essenes and Zealots and Sadducees and scribes. and all, But really, the Pharisees were kind of the largest group. They were a group that actually tried to get Jesus to join them. Because Jesus... What Jesus taught and believed was really close to some of the things that they believed. They believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. Um, they believed in um, a number of, uh, of things that um, angels, things like that that, that, that the other groups didn't. So I actually believe that a lot of the Pharisees were kind of trying to attract Jesus to join their movement, to give them a little bit of uh, street cred, you, you, I guess you could say. 
The problem is, Exodus chapter 18 says specifically that you're not to associate with godless people. So when the Pharisees see Jesus eating with, public, with people of the land and, and, and tax collectors, they're looking at it going, you're violating Exodus chapter 18. How can you be a rabbi? How can you be a teacher of the law? How can you be God? How can you be all the things that you're saying? Because you are explicitly violating those passages. And so they had a big, big problem with this. So as, as they see Jesus doing this, they start mutter, muttering and grumbling. Literally, the idea is they just continue to have this undertow grumbling continually. So Jesus, noticing this, decides to tell them a parable. Actually, he's going to tell them three, one big parable with three parts, but here's the first part. He goes into it and he says, okay, guys, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, here, here's what's amazing, okay? So, first of all, in the, to the Pharisees, being a shepherd was not a high occupation because they couldn't keep all the Old Testament ceremonial laws. So it was an occupation that at this point in culture was looked down upon. So Jesus picked something that just by picking this story was enough to poke the bear a little bit. He says, let's talk about shepherds. And, and actually, as he gets farther in the story, he's going to compare them to a shepherd, which is even more unusual. But he said, let's say that you're a shepherd, you've got a hundred sheep, and one of them walks off. And if you know stuff about sheep, that's what they do. You know, they kind of, you know, they're grazing here, and they're like, oh, it looks better over there. And then the next thing you know, and then they kind of want, oh, hey, we're over here. Before you know it, they're, they've gotten all the way out. They, they just wandered off. It's not really intentional on their part. It's just that's what they do. And he said, and the shepherd notices that one of them is gone. Now, typically in this culture, uh, the they would have a, a group of sheep that would belong to the village, and two or three shepherds would be hired to take care of those sheep, and they were responsible. So if you lost a sheep, you actually needed to go find, if, let's say, a, a wolf or something had eaten it. You needed to actually come back with the, the skin to show that it was dead so that they didn't think you were doing something under the table, getting rid of them, making money, and that kind of thing. You were accountable for them. So he throws this idea of the idea of a shepherd who's lost a sheep, and the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to find the other one. And it's interesting because he throws this out, and he says, which one of you, if you were a shepherd, now that's on, normally in parables Jesus is a certain man or a certain person. This thing, he makes this personal. He says, he's looking at the Pharisees, he goes, let me ask something. Which one of you is a shepherd? <laughs> We're not going to be shepherds. I would have just that in and of itself. This is a typical um, shepherd. I, listen to what this guy said um, describing shepherds. Because again, I know you have this image, and I want to destroy it. On some high moor across which at night the hyenas howl, when you meet him, talking about a shepherd, sleepless, far sighted weather-beaten, armed, leaning on his staff and looking over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart. 
This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about this kind of shepherd would go out at any cost to find the sheep. And then notice what he, it says. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Um, this was a pretty common thing. Um, this is typically, is that a sheep or is that a goat? That's a goat. I thought that was a goat. I didn't think I was too good. But I found this picture, so you get the idea. <laughs> Pretend it's a sheep. Because uh, I looked at it and I went, that looks like a goat. Uh, but anyway, here's the idea. Um, Philip Keller, who wrote the great commentary on Psalm 23, talks about sheep that get that wander off. And one of the dangers for a sheep, I guess, is when it lays down. Uh, it can roll over on its back. When it rolls over on its back, what happens is the gases in its stomach tend to blow its stomach up. And so as it lays there too long, what happens is it can't roll itself back over. As it lays there on its back with its feet up in the air, it's, it starts to lose circulation to its, to its, its feet. And they say that in a, in a really hot climate in this culture, it's not uncommon for that sheep to die within hours. If it's a cloudy day, sometimes those sheep can last two or three days like that, where they can't help themselves. So when a shepherd finds these sheep, he puts it, he carries it just like that guy carried the goat, with it over his back and down so that the blood will start to go back to the limbs so ultimately they can get that sheep to stand up on its own. In the early church, before we had the fish and the cross, one of the symbols for Christianity was actually a shepherd carrying a sheep. So we have this idea that Jesus brings out here. And he said, you know, what? when he comes back, it's, notice he's, it's the idea that I have found my sheep. It's interesting, he says, my sheep. And then notice what he says, in this, I tell you in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need to repent. Now, this is a very important statement, and here's why. In the Jewish world, they literally believed, they literally said this, there is joy in heaven over a sinner who perishes. They looked at it as God took great delight in destroying the wicked. So when Jesus makes this statement, this is a direct statement against something that they would have held, which is just the opposite of what they believed in. They believed that God took great delight when God wiped, when, when, when a sinner died. And he says, no, 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 I tell you in the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous or 99 people who think they're righteous. So let's just walk through a little bit of this idea here, this idea of rejoicing in heaven. I don't know if that, if that rattles your brain a second, but just think about this for a second. What's the purpose of heaven? What's the focus of heaven? It's Jesus. You know what this passage teaches us? That when someone puts their faith and trust in Christ, for that moment in heaven, heaven stops and focuses on the sinner that has been saved by the Savior. That's an incredible thought. That heaven has that much of a focus on what happens here as well as that which is happening there. And he talks about the idea of rejoicing. It's the idea, uh, and it says repent. It, that's an interesting word. Luke uses it about 14 times in Luke and Acts. 
And, and we make a big deal out of the repentance thing, but all repentance is, is a change of direction. The change in the way you think, change in the way you act, change in the way you're going. So in other words, you know, and I've done it before, but, you know, this is, here's repentance. I just repented. I was going that direction, now I'm going this direction. So when somebody looks at me and says, well, I can put my faith to trust Christ and I can go to heaven, I can just keep living however I want. No. Where's the repentance? Where's the change? Where's the, okay, no, I'm going to start doing things differently now. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to please God with my life. And it's interesting because the word's in a continual aspect, which means it's a, it's a mindset. It's a mindset that when I put my faith and trust in Christ, I'm choosing to live a life of repentance that says, I'm going to continue to change my mind, my direction, my thoughts, my attitudes, my habits to be more in line with what Jesus teaches. I'm going to continually do that. That's what he's talking about here. And he said, when someone repents, when someone puts their faith and trust in Christ, heaven stops for a moment and rejoices. That's an awesome concept. That's an awesome concept. So, what does that mean for us as we head into the week? Um, here a couple of ideas. Here's the first one. What's fascinating to me in this story is that God sees people as lost. That's a simple concept, but it's huge if you'll let it sink in this week. See, God sees people as lost. They saw them as people of the land or Jewish. God says lost. That's how Jesus says we are to see people, lost. So here's my question to you. Do you see people as lost? Because if you do, you will change a lot of your behavior. See, what we see people in categories, we see people as Republican or Democrat or other. We see people as liberal or conservative. We, we put people in these categories, LGBTQ, black, Indian, uh, Jesus, God says lost. Because you see, when you start thinking of people in those terms, you treat them differently. I don't look at it as, well, you have a different political view of me, so I'm going to shove my political view down your throat and tell you all the reasons your political view is wrong. Versus, wait a minute, you're lost. Look at your scripture. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. When I, I maintain this, when you start seeing some of your Facebook friends as lost, you will post differently. Because right now you've got them in categories, and you know, and this is why I'm right and you're wrong. Wait a minute, when they're lost, you respond differently. I think this is huge to the story. That we start to see people. As lost. When, when, when you're mad because that cashier or because that waitress or waiter or that person serving you has messed it all up, and you see them as someone who's supposed to wait on me and serve me and do it right and get the order right, and how dare you waste my time, and you don't know how important this is, and you've messed it up, and you've ruined my whole day, versus 
here's a lost person. They need to see Christ in the way I respond. You handle it a whole lot differently. Jesus sees people as lost. Don't miss that. Second principle. In order to find something, you have to leave something. In this story, they leave the 99 to go seek the one. I think one of the things that's happened for us is we're uncomfortable leaving because we like comfort. You know, the the shepherd didn't sit back. The shepherd didn't sit back and go, well, only losing one is not bad. I still got 99. It's just one. It's just one. No, the shepherd said, you know what? I'm comfortable with these 99. I got them in a nice, secure area, a nice, safe area. Everything's good. These sheep are all okay. But you know what? I'm going to go find that one. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be uncomfortable. I may have to climb some places that are pretty dangerous. But I'm going to go get that sheep. I'm going to go find that sheep. I'm going to do everything I can to at least come back with something to know what happened to that sheep. And that shepherd does that to that extent that he goes out. Listen to what, um, uh, listen to what, uh, where was it? Where was it? Howard Hendricks. Here's what he said. I can't find a verse of scripture that commands a lost person to go to church. But I know a lot of scripture that commands believers to go into a lost world. In order to do that, we have to leave that which is comfortable. And that's hard. I think we come here, like we, like we said this morning with the battery cable thing, we come here to get charged up. We come here to encourage each other. We come here, but we come here to leave the comfort of this, to go into a lost world where it's dangerous, where it's uncomfortable, where people don't think like we think, where people don't see things the way we see things, where people act differently than we act. And yes, we're uncomfortable, but we're uncomfortable because we're not with people like us. And what amazes me is not only was Jesus comfortable with people who weren't like him, but people who weren't like him wanted to be like him. They wanted to be around him. Which brings me to the last point of this thing. There is something about the life of Jesus Christ that attracted these people. They were drawn to him. They said, I don't like what he's saying. He's so much different than me. But I want to be close to him. I want to listen to him. I want to learn more about what he's teaching. Now, here's my question to you. Is the world drawn to us that way? Or have we pushed them away in the way we go about talking to them? Listen, the more I wrestle with this, the more uncomfortable I get with this. Is the world attracted to me? And my Savior, because of the way I interact with the world? See, here's the thing that they found out about Jesus. When they went to Jesus, did Jesus approve of them? No. The woman at the well, he looks at her and goes, go, sin no more, change your life. Don't keep doing what you're doing. He didn't compromise. He didn't just blow it all off. He told people the truth, and no matter how difficult that was, but he spoke it in love. 
So when they get around Jesus, here's what they find. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, mercy, kindness, temperance. They find that in the way he talks to them, in the way that he approaches them, they feel respected and they feel like they're valued, but at the same time, he doesn't minimize truth. But he speaks truth in love. And I wonder sometimes if that's true of us. If the things that we post, people who disagree with us can go, you know what, I disagree with you, but at least you're loving in the way that you said it. You're gentle. You're meek. This is what you see in the life of Jesus. My challenge to us this week is, listen, we've got to step back and see the world as lost. The hell that we talked about last week is real, and that is where people are naturally headed. We have an opportunity to share Christ with them, but we have to see them as lost, and we have to treat them in such a way that we may have to leave our comfort little world in order to go out and be in their world that's very uncomfortable. But then in their world, as we interact with that world, we have to do it in such a way that we are kind and gentle and loving and full of joy and peace and long-suffering and patience and all those things that are through the Spirit that Jesus automatically does. That's our challenge this week. That's our challenge. Love that sound. That's our challenge. So as I end this morning, I end with this. Jesus sees the world as lost. This story challenges his followers to live in such a way that the world is attracted to what we possess. And they want to be friends with us. Jesus reminds us that our obligation is to go to those that are lost without him. Ask God this week to burden your heart for those that are lost and that desperately need a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, use us. Lord, it's exciting to us that we get to spend eternity with you. But Lord, there's a world that that possibility does not exist because they do not put their, and have not put their faith and trust in you. We're the light, so help us to be that. May we, as followers of you, do what you did and live in such a way that people seeing us want to know more about our God. Use us this week. Challenge us. And uh, when it is all said and done, Lord, may people come to know you because we've done that which you asked us to do. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing the first verse, or the second verse, I'm sorry. Have thine own way, Lord. Let's stand as we sing.